If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And they're going to bring some notes down to you this morning. And um, I want to preach a message until it's a family thing. In 1916, a woman by the name of Hetty Green died. And when she did, it was discovered that in her possession, she had left an estate valued at $100 million. That's in 1916. Now, now, transfer that with the cost of inflation, all those things. That is an enormous sum of money uh, that that would be in 1916. The, the thing, though, was with Hetty was you would not know by her living style that she would have had that kind of money. She would actually, every morning when she would eat her oatmeal, she would eat it cold because she thought that it cost too much to heat the water to heat, heat up her oatmeal for her breakfast. Um, she's the kind of lady that one time when her son had gotten injured and hurt his leg, um, she looked all over the community for a free clinic. She didn't want to spend the money to take her son to get his leg healed by going to a doctor or to a a hospital and paying for it, even though she's got millions and millions of dollars. In fact, she waited so long to get her son the care that he needed that by the time she got to a doctor, it was too late. They had to amputate his leg. Um, she got in an argument at the end of her life. Actually, what, what hastened her death was she got in an argument over the, the cost of skim milk versus whole milk and whether it was worth a few cents extra to drink whole milk rather than skim milk, and she got in such a heated argument that she had a stroke that caused her to die at, at the age of nine, at, 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 when she was at nine, in 1916. And what is amazing about all of that is she was a woman who possessed great wealth, but yet she didn't know how to use it. She didn't know what she had, and she didn't have the ability to tap into that. And, and as we look at the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to drive home that same emphasis of, in Christ, you have an incredible wealth in the family of God. I'm so thankful we got to sing the songs this morning that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And you begin to think through some of the, 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 the uh, truths that are given to us in the book of Ephesians of the, the richness of being in Christ. We use that term that I'm in Christ, but to think through, what does that mean? What is at my disposal because I'm in Christ. And in that we're going to find realities of that, that we, are, we are blessed, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are inheritors, we are sealed. I mean, over and over again, it's going to emphasize that we have this incredible wealth at our disposal. We have this incredible blessing that we've been giving, get, been given to us through God and through Jesus Christ. But do we tap into it? Do we, do we realize what we have and what that's supposed to mean in our lives? And so the, the words there in Christ is found uh, some 15 times in the passage. Uh, when you add into it other texts like or other situations or phrases such as in or with or through Christ over 30 times in this book, Paul's going to emphasize that uh, that reality that if you are redeemed, you are in Christ and what happens with those riches? Um, he, he mentions riches five times. Grace is mentioned 12 times. So Ephesians is written to teach us all about whom we are 
in Christ Jesus, that our identity is completely and inextricably bound up with Christ in his exalted state. What we have because of of our relationship with him and how to use what he has given to us for the glory of God, that, that not only do we know this, but what does that mean? What does that produce in our lives? And so that's why I've entitled today's message. It's a family thing. It's actually the, the start of a series that I've begun at my church. And I'll tell you, out of all the series that I've preached, I have gotten more excited in my office studying and realizing the richness of this, this identity of being in Christ. And there has been more shouting and hallelujahs in my office studying the book of Ephesians more than any other book. And so what I really hope to do this morning is to kind of spark your, your taste buds for the book of Ephesians and for that reality that you are in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and, and to say, man, I want to I read the book of Ephesians. And I want to see what else is at my disposal. How am I rich? And so let me just give you some of the, some of the references in, in the book of Ephesians that tell us about our richness in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Go down to verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. We are inheritors. Verse 18, notice that there it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Chapter two, verse seven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter three in verse eight to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, that he should grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And so what we find is we're going to go through the book of Ephesians and see this is that you are rich when you're in the family of God. We, we live in a society that is struggling to determine my, our identity. She's struggling to determine what our purpose is. Struggling to find joy and hope. But when we understand what we have when we are in Christ, there gives us hope. There gives us our identity. There gives us a purpose for living the Christian life. So that's what you have when you become a Christian and follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're adopted out of poverty and death into riches and life. Now, the the question then is, I want you to get that great truth. But then the question is, is, well, what does that transfer to? What does that mean in my life? When I understand the knowledge of that, I am in Christ. What should that produce? And so I want to give you a a statement this morning, a statement that if you if you're one who likes to read theological books that are uh, with with big words and those things. You might come across this statement. Now, I don't want you to be alarmed by the statement in the beginning, but I'm going to give you a statement. Orthodoxy should lead to doxology and orthopraxy. I know some of you are looking at me saying, I don't read books like that. Um, that, that doesn't sound like a fun book to read. 
Well, let me break it down because there's a great truth in this. And so here's what these words mean. Orthodoxy, my right doctrine, the right understanding of the truth of this book. When I understand what who I am in Christ, that should lead to doxology. I mean, I want to lead to worship and praise that I want to exalt the God who has made me his. And it also should lead then to orthopraxy, which is right living, a right practice of working that out of my life. So when we get the understanding of that I am in Christ, this should not just be a heady ivory tower knowledge. Well, that's a good knowledge. Well, that's a great truth that we got today. No, no, that should transfer out to worship. Man, I just want to exalt the Lord. I want to praise his name and I want to make sure that I live like I'm a child of God. I want to live to please him because I'm in Christ. I'm not in the world anymore as I'm not I'm not enslaved by the bondage of my sin. And I'm, not, I'm not a part of that dominion anymore. I'm in a new family. I'm in the family of God. And so I ought to move to orthopraxy. And so actually you're going to see it. As we go to chapter one there, you're going to see two interesting words. I just want to highlight them and see that this this emphasis of what this is for. Notice in verse four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Here's the key word. Circle this that there's a purpose statement that he chose me that. We should be holy and without blame before him in love. There's the orthopraxy. The right doctrine, the orthodoxy that I'm in Christ leads to that I might be before him holy and without blame. Now continue on. Look down in verse six. And here's another key word. We're going to see two transitional words. One is the that. The second one is to to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. To the praise of the glory of His grace. There's the doxology. So Paul says, hey, this, this right teaching that you're in Christ, it ought to lead to right living. That we ought to walk before Him holy and without blame, before Him in love. It ought to lead to worship, to doxology, to the praise of the glory of His grace. In fact, in verses 3 through verse 13, is actually one long run-on sentence in the original language. It's 202 words. And he finishes kind of thoughts with that same idea of to the praise of the glory of his grace. You see it in verse seven and six. You see it in verse 12. And you see it also in verse uh, number 14. That same idea to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so, in fact, the book is actually laid out that way. Uh, he's going to give us in, in the book. The first three chapters are are doctrinal in nature. And then in chapter four, he begins it with. Therefore, because of all these truths, because of all this, this doctrine, therefore, what should that lead to in our lives? How should that play out in our lives? And so woven then through all of that is this jubilant worship and praise. And so we're going to be looking at verses, really just verses one through three this morning and kind of whetting our appetite for the rest of the book. Let me let me read that and we'll start into it. And I want you to notice, especially verse three, this this woven jubilant praise. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, here's the phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So that ought to lead to that doxology. God calls us to worship. Right doctrine calls us to worship. And that, that, ought to, that ought to manifest itself in a multitude of ways. Worship is a multitude of ways, one of them being singing. It is exciting, and I enjoyed your worship service coming together in, in the singing part. Now, this is obvious. This is worship, studying God's Word and, and those things as well. But I enjoyed the singing aspect of your worship this morning. I enjoyed hearing the choir, and I enjoyed thinking through the doctrines that we sang about and, and to exalt the Lord in that. But that is a that is ought to be a heartbeat of every Christian to sing. It shouldn't be just to say, well, that's not really my my thing, Pastor. You know, that's not really what I'm really good at. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really care about the singing time of the service. The Bible calls us to sing. Let, let me read to you just two psalms that begin this way. Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with song. You may not have the, the best noise, but you can make a joyful noise of singing. The very next psalm, Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all peoples. That is a heartbeat that I have is to see Christians sing. And that's a heartbeat that God has for you. So, so it shouldn't be that we say, well, I'll just sit and I'll take this in. This is great. They're singing. I ought to be, man, I want to, I want to be a part of this because I'm in Christ because I'm in his family and he's worthy of me exalting his name. He's worthy of all the praise that I could give him. And so I want you to understand this morning that you are in Christ. You are loved. You are adopted. You are chosen. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are an inheritor. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That ought to excite, that ought to even excite a, 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 a Presbyterian this morning to say, man, I'm going I'm to praise the Lord. Man, we are in Christ. So I just have two points this morning, but let's pray together that we would, that we would grasp this position that we have in Christ and it would transfer in our hearts. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word this morning. Thank you as we sang about this morning that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that that Lamb is your Son that you gave for us because you love us. And you've adopted us then. When we trust you as our personal Lord and Savior, when we come by faith, you've adopted us into your family. We become joint heirs with Christ, inheritors of the blessing. God, that, that astounds me and blows me away of how good you are to us. And your love for us. I pray that that would be an encouragement to this people this morning. That these brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would, we would get just revitalized and encouraged. Based upon this truth. 
So I pray that you'd use me for your glory and the Holy Spirit have freedom to work in each heart this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, just two, two points this morning. And the first point I want us to see is remember your position. And a tag phrase to that we're going to take from the text would be in Christ Jesus. And so in verses one through two, we're going to really highlight this part here. And as I said earlier, this phrase in Christ or in him appears 15 times. And with the other uh, the other prepositionals through or in or with over 30 times. And so Paul is establishing that foundation that our our position is in Christ. So let's get some of the background that to, to that, though. Who is he speaking to? How does that how does that translate to us in, in our experience? And so I want to just just kind of give us a little bit of the foundation of the letter. And notice in verse one that Paul's going to start by just establishing his authorship and, and credibility. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so we immediately know who's speaking this. This is the Apostle Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle, which is one who is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ personally uh, with direct orders from Christ. And so then the question is, well, who is Paul speaking to? He's a credible apostle of Christ. Who is he speaking to? Well, he says there to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's going to identify these two realities of saints and faithful in Christ. Now, I would say this, regarding that word saint, that is a word that I think there's a lot of confusion and um, misrepresentation today that I almost wish we could change the word. Uh, The word there in, in the original language is hagios, which means holy ones. And unfortunately today in our in our culture in which we live, we tend to think that a saint is someone who's died and we've evaluated the, the, the whole aspect of their life. And if they've done enough good, we're going to exalt them to a position of sainthood. But the Bible doesn't use that that way, as if we've got this special class of Christians who we can you know, pray to or do those things. The Bible actually uses that term saint of all Christians. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you are a holy one in Christ Jesus. And that is your identity. We don't have to carry around this guilt of, well, I'm, I'm not forgiven or I'm a, a, a sinner. I love the fact that even though Paul says in Romans 7, where he says, oh, wretched man that I am. But he begins chapter 8 by saying, but there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm a saint. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, but in Christ, I'm a saint. And the Bible uses that term over and over and over again of Christians. In fact, Paul uses that term nine times in this letter of the Ephesians to all of the Christians there. And so they're, they're the, positionally, they're the saints, they're the forgiven ones, the redeemed ones, but also uses the term the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason I think he identifies the the contrast there is while the word saint describes our standing before the Lord, the word the word faithful describes our activities in the world. The one is our position. The one other is our practice. So positionally, we're in Christ. 
practically as we live it out, we're the faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul is identifying his readers as as the active and alive church. Those who are saying, man, we want to follow the Lord because of who we are in Christ. Now, it also tells us that this is to those who are at Ephesus. So what context is does that come into this? Where did this church of Ephesus come to be? What do we know about this church of Ephesus? I think it's always helpful when we begin a Bible study into a, a book that we begin to, to put some of the contextual pieces around it because it makes the, the teaching uh, linked to us better. We understand it better. We understand why he's saying this this way. And so I think it's always good to, to ask yourself some of those questions and to look at maps and to see where they're at and to, to do those things. So, so where is Ephesus? Well, as probably many of you know, Ephesus, as you can see there, is circled. It's on the west side of Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. It was a, an incredibly uh, beautiful and powerful port city the time of Jesus Christ and the time of, of Paul's writing here. In fact, one Roman writer called it the Luminasia, which means the light of Asia. Uh, this was a, uh, a beautiful city. It was an economical city because they would have trade that would come from the west, would come into the port seat of Ephesus, and then it would be transferred all the way over into Asia from there. And so it was a, a popular uh, place to be. It had the greatest harbor in Asia Minor. Um, and it stood at that great place between the A.G. and the Mediterranean uh, and the Mediterranean Sea there. It was also the tip of the Caister River. And, and so when you zoom in on a um, well, I'm going to zoom in here on with Google Earth. This is the harbor now as you look into it today. And so as you look at the dark blue to the left, that's the Mediterranean. Here would be the harbor. Um, and unfortunately, Ephesus used to be out. Uh, there's this deep harbor they could come into. But the problem was the Caister River that comes into there uh, was a very dirty river. And so it began to silt up the harbor. Even during the, t- during the time of Paul, it was beginning to silt up. And they had to keep on trying to dredge it out to bring these ships in. And so it was becoming a problem. But that eventually led to the, the demise of Ephesus being a popular port city because they could not keep that port harbor open. Uh, by the time that that Paul was or John is writing the book of Revelation in the, in the 90s um, A.D., the, the city, the port was actually about three miles inland um, from the Mediterranean. Today, if you go and visit it, I was there just a, a two years ago. Today, it's about six miles uh, inland because it's continued to silt up and silt up and silt up. And so it, it kind of led to its downfall. But at the time of 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 Paul writing the Ephesians, it was still a booming city. And, and Paul recognized that although it wasn't, the, it wasn't the capital of Asia Minor, he recognized that it was the most influential city. And so on his second missionary journey, he made a point um, as he came through here that, that he would come back to this place and work on some evangelism. So on his third missionary journey, he came back and um, and, and there with Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos and others, he spent two years and three months evangelizing and forming a church and, and, and working on, because he saw this as a place where he could get the gospel to, and because of its influence of what went out of here, that it would be a hub. 
The, the, the word of God would go out to different places. And so it would it would reach out to Colossae and Laodicea and, and to Thyatira and Pergamos and those other places in, in Asia Minor. And, and and while he was there, the, the the church and the city saw great revival. In fact, so much so that the the idol makers who made uh, uh, silver idols for the temple of Diana and the worship of Diana were losing so much business that they, they actually caused an uprising um, and tried to have Paul and his and his uh, associates killed. Uh, there was such a revival that they were taking the people were all taking their their papers and books of witchcraft and all those things and were burning them um, and getting rid of that stuff. And so so Paul established that that church in the early 50s. He writes this letter in about 63 A.D. So about 10 years later, he writes the book of Ephesians to try to help encourage this church to remind them of their identity, to remind them of these truths, because the reality is, is we can sometimes forget. We can sometimes just get into the whole hum of life and we forget that man, God loves us that much and that we are redeemed. We don't have to to buy the lies of Satan because he's going to constantly try to influence your mind to say, man, I might as well quit. I can't get victory. He tells us, no, you can have victory. You are already victorious in Christ. And so he's writing this letter to them 10 years later. Unfortunately, we can start to see as we look at then the book of Revelation that about 30 years later that they were struggling still. So I want you to see that. Let's, let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter number two. And in Revelation two, one of the first churches that Christ addresses. To the seven churches, there is the church of Ephesus in Revelation two, verses one through seven. Now, again, this would be about 30 years after the book of Ephesians was written but I think there's some admonition for us to gather from this. He says under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them, which are evil. And, and thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience. Uh, for my name's sake and has labored and has not fainted. So he's saying, man, I know the church of Ephesus, you guys are laboring and you're testing those who, who come in and say they're apostles and you, you are holding for my name. But unfortunately, we see verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. This reality that they were doing all of this stuff but they weren't doing it out of love for God anymore. There's a, there's a danger to doing our Christianity out of duty, out of repetition, and losing the love for God in it. And, and, and I think there's a, that, that ties right back to the book of Ephesians. I think if Paul could address that church then, he would have said, hey, remember the same thing. Remember how much God loves you. Remember who you are in Christ. That you do what you do out of love for Him. That you so, so what does he actually say? Jesus says to them in verse five, remember, therefore, from where thou hast fallen and repent and do the first works. He says, remember that you're in Christ. 
Remember that you're in the family of God. Remember those truths that you've been redeemed and forgiven, that you're an inheritor. Remember all those things and repent from trying to do it away from God. Do you realize you can do Christianity and not even associate God in it? There's a danger to a Christianity that is done apart from the power and the work and the presence and love of God. And he says, repent of doing that. It may not be in my church. It may not ever be in this church that we do a lot of stuff, but we don't do it out of love for God. He says, remember your position. Repent of doing it for the wrong reasons and then do the first works. Do those things and return to it. Warren Wearsby summed it up this way. He said the local church is a spouse to Christ, but there's always the danger of that love growing cold. Like Martha, we can be so busy working for Christ that we have no time to love him. Christ is more concerned about what we do with him than for him. Labor is no substitute for love to the public. The Ephesian church was successful, but to Christ, it had fallen. So he told them to return and repent. So we see there's the foundation. You get now hopefully a little bit of a, a better understanding of this church of Ephesus that he's writing to and really how it can link to us. That we sometimes struggle with the exact same things. And Paul is saying, hey, remember your position. And so that you're in Christ. And so we've seen that foundation, but then. That's going to tie right to the focus of the letter. Our next point there that remember the grace and peace that you have from God and Christ to the saints and faith, which are in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This word grace is found 12 times in the book of Ephesians, and it speaks of kindness of God towards undeserving people. Aren't you thankful that the gospel of grace is given to undeserving people and not just to those who are deserving. Some time ago, um, I have a nephew, his name is Colton, and he had done a, a lot of like, um, I don't know if it's the, he'd done a lot of research on our, on our ancestry and traced our family line back and had gone many, 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 many generations all the way back to the time of Christ. And found that we're actually related to Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and we're also related to the Romans who killed Jesus. But he also found that there was, uh, there was royalty in our blood. There was princes and some kings in our blood. And so I found that out. And so one day I, I, I called my family together at dinner time. And I said, I want to sit you guys all down. There's something important I want to share with you. And I said, Colton found out that there is really what I kind of always felt inside me. That there is there's royal blood that's flowing through my veins. And 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 I said, so I, I wanted to ask you guys from this point forward, I think it's only worthy that that you should call me Lord Father. Um, of course, they didn't buy that. And my my daughter, Riley, who's here today, she quickly snapped up and said, I'll call you Lord Father if you'll call me Princess Riley. And um, but the reality is. I, I stand really more like Paul, a wretched man that I am. There is nothing in me that God said, oh, I've got to have Greg. I'm going to offer the gospel to Greg, but not somebody else. I was a wretched, woeful sinner destined for hell because of my rebellion against God. 
but God's grace. But God's grace looked down and said, Greg, I, I love you. And I'm going to give my son to die on the cross to cover your sins. Grace is that the gospel is offered to undeserving people. There's not one person at your school. There's not one person at your workplace that doesn't deserve to know about the grace of Jesus Christ. We all stand here redeemed and forgiven, not because there's some great meritorious thing to our name, but because there's something meritorious to his and he's gracious to us. And so he reminds us of that. And I think we don't always fully fathom just how much God loves us. That ought to wash over us on a regular basis. You ought to remind yourself that that God loves you that much on a regular basis. That apart from God's grace, we'd be destined for eternal punishment in hell. But God doesn't desire that for anyone. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so you've never done that. That grace is available and free today. Man, isn't that great how much God loves us? We are in His family. He made us His, and we're bearing His name now. So remember your position. Remember that you are in Christ Jesus. Let's go to our second point, and we'll wrap this up. Rejoice in your position. And here we'll use some of the the phrases from the text there. Blessed be, verse 3, verse 6, to the praise. Um, And so Paul is about to lay out this long treatise then in verses 3 through 14. And he makes that statement of, he starts it out with, blessed be, with praise. And he finishes it out again with, to the praise of his glory. And so he's encapsulating this reality that we are in Christ with a reflection back of rejoicing in that position. So in verse 3, Paul introduces us to the wealthy storehouse of grace that we have in Christ and shows us why God is worthy to be praised. And he uses that term blessed, which is the word in, in the original language, eulogetos, from which we get our word eulogy. If you've ever been to a, a funeral, we'll, we'll eulogize someone to speak well of, to give praise and honor of. Well, what... What, uh, let's break down this eulogy just in verse 3. And I want you to notice some things here. First, I want you to notice the source of this blessing. The source is God the Father. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, it's God who made us rich in Christ. He placed us in the family. God is good and His name is worthy to be praised. From Genesis to Revelation... That exaltation is encouraged. We see in Genesis 14, 20 with Melchizedek saying, Blessed be the Most High God. In Revelation 5, 13, before the throne, we see this amazing worship where it's blessing and honor and glory and power. Be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And so there's this praise that He is worthy of. And not only is he the source of blessing, or he is the source of the, uh, the one who deserves to be blessed, but he is also the source who is the blesser. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed. He's chosen to bless out. He's the blesser. As James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father 
of lights. Well, who's the subject then of these blessings? Notice it. Who's the subject that has blessed who? Us. Blessed be the God and Father, it says there, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Who's the us? It's the saints in verse 1. The faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ, He has blessed. We're the receivers of that. Those who should be the greatest and jubilant in praise should be the us. Blessed be God. That ought to be the, what resounds on our lips is blessed be God. He has redeemed us. Well, what's the scope then of this blessing? How is that? How much blessing has he given us? Notice it. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. With all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say some blessings. He gave us some blessings. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, he gives lots of blessings. Doesn't say that. He says all. All of the blessings that are that are uh, for those who are in the family of God. Those who are God's children, you get it all. You get the whole kit and caboodle. You get the keys to the castle, man. You've got it all. And I think sometimes we forget that. That God says, man, I don't want to just, yeah, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. And, you know, you're kind of over here. You're out and you're out. You stay out in the shed. No, no. He says, here's the keys to it all. You can have it all. You're my child. I love you. You get all the blessings. And I'm going to, I'm going to pour my spirit into you. You're going to have my Holy Spirit inside of you who's going to help produce the fruits in your life. I love that. In fact, the word there for spiritual translate from the Greek word pneumatikos, which throughout the New Testament is used for the Holy Spirit and His working. And so he's saying He has given you all of the Holy Spirit to be able to do within your life everything that He desires to do. Now, think about this in Galatians 5. What does the Holy Spirit want to produce in you? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How would that impact your life if we said, yes, Holy Spirit, I know you want to give it all to me, and I want to give you the free reign to work it in my life. I want to accept it all. I want to, I want to receive that all and allow you to do that. How would that affect if you had the fullness of love, the fullness of peace, the fullness, parents, of patience? The fullness of self-control. How would that change your marriage? How would that change the home relationships? God says, I want you to have those, that, that, that environment in your life. So much that I've given you all of the Holy Spirit. He is gonna, he, I want Him to work that in your life. Jesus said, I leave my peace with you. All of it. You get to have that. And so... The reality is, is that people are desperately trying to find acceptance and love and trying to manufacture that somehow in their lives. And until we recognize it's in Christ that we have all of it, everything else won't satisfy. Satan tries to try to make things look glittery and great in other, other, other realms in our lives. But the greatest fulfillment of all blessing is that you're in Christ. And you've got all of the blessing. And so, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We have a better country. We have a better home. We have a, a future to look to, forward to 
in the heavens with Christ. Well, that takes us to the last point, and we'll wrap this up. The state of these blessings. He says, who is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Why do we receive all these blessings from God the Father? Only because we're identified with Christ. Only because you are joint heirs with Him. You bear His name. You are VIPs because the, the VIP gave you His name. Several years ago, when I, actually, when I, was, I was a young uh, kid, we had a, uh, a relative of ours that was a uh, high-up aide in the White House. And this was during the George Herbert Walker Bush years. And, um, and they got us a private tour. Uh, and, and I remember even going to the, to the Oval Office and seeing the Resolute Desk and all these things. And as you go through the different checkpoints, he's, the, the aide told us, just wear my tag. And, and, and they'll see my tag and you'll be brought in right with me and that's okay. We had access into special rooms and places because we wore his tag. You know why we have access to everything and the blessings in the storehouse of God? Because we're in Christ. He says, I'm going to give you my tag. I'm going to take your sin upon me. I'm going to give you my righteousness and your joint heirs with me. You're a child of God. You can go and have all of it. You're in Christ. That's the state of those blessings. And so look, look, look at how this translates then, um, how this works out. Look at chapter two, verses four through seven. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Looking back at chapter one there, look at verse four through six. I think this is a powerful passage here. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us in the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise, and here's the key word, key phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Listen, I don't care whether you hold your placement in God's family, the, the means of that, the, the placement of that is all of God and you had no free will in that. Or if you say, yes, I had free will in that. The reality is you're in Christ. And that will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Which he has made us accepted in the beloved. The result of that is praise. When we grasp who we are and what we have in Christ. It's a family thing. Man. What a wonderful blessing when we grasp. Sorry, I missed a line there for you. When we grasp, we're in the family of God. God wanted you in his family before the foundation of the world. To be in Christ is a richness that we should never take for granted. I read this one time and I'll finish with this. In Christ, we have a love that can never be fathomed. A life that can never die. A righteousness that can never be tarnished. A peace that can never be understood. A rest that can never be disturbed. A joy that can never be diminished. A hope that can never be disappointed. 
a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled and resources that can never be exhausted. We have an incredible inheritance and blessing when we recognize we're in Christ. I hope that's an encouragement to you today. I hope it makes you say, man, I want to take that knowledge and I want to work it out to doxology. I want to praise him and I want to work that out to orthopraxy. I want to live for him because he's my Lord and Savior. I want to live like I bear the family name. I have a new name and I want to bear that in my life. Orthodoxy should lead to doxology and orthopraxy.